Hello, hello, and welcome back to DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and you are listening to episode one of season two of the podcast. And if this is the first episode you've ever heard, number one, thank you so much for checking it out. It can be really hard these days to check out something new. It's a lot easier just to stick to things that are familiar, things that you like already. Something that's a guaranteed good time. And that's kind of what I do with this podcast is I listen to albums or sometimes watch movies or play video games and then I reflect on them and I reflect on what I was doing at the time in my life that that record came out or whenever I found it and sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. But what is surprising to me is how a record can imprint itself on you and on a period of your life. So in this episode, I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to talk about Arbiter by Hope's Fall a little bit. But what I'm mostly going to talk about is some things that happened to me in 2018 leading up to the release of Arbiter. So strap in because this is going to be one hell of a ride. One particular night in January, pretty much right at the top of the year, I remember I'd had a pretty long day at work, which I'll get into why my days are so long a little bit later in this episode. But I remember coming home and I had just picked up one of those Super Nintendo Classic systems. They were like all the rage back in 2018. You had like the NES Classic and the SNES Classic and they were like mini computers that emulated Nintendo games and you could play them like with original controllers and they were super rad and I was sitting down to show my daughters a game that I liked when I was a kid when my wife came in looking really really upset holding our five-month-old son Dan I think he's having trouble breathing he's fighting really hard for every breath what do we do I've never seen this before how long has it been happening I don't know. He seemed fine earlier today. He won't nurse. He just sits there. And his breathing's really hard. Like, he's not getting enough air. What do we do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? It's so crazy how everything can shift on you in literal seconds. My wife had taken him and his two sisters out that day. They travel around a lot, like not long distances, but they go a lot of different places every week. They go to the zoo, they go to playdates, they go to the park. They're just about being out places and being outside. And apparently our little guy was acting just fine earlier that day, but now all of a sudden, He's breathing really hard, like he's struggling to get all of his breaths in. We, we were kind of shocked. Even though we weren't exactly new parents, I mean, this, this was our third kid, but this was the first time we'd ever experienced anything like this. So in a panic, I tell her to take him to the emergency room. And that was kind of a hard decision to make because in case you didn't know, 
Health insurance in the United States sucks. And I knew that an emergency room visit, like plus a potential extended hospital stay, was going to cost me a fortune. And it was a fortune that I didn't have. But I mean, my kid needed that help. He, he needed that. There wasn't anything I could do about it. And that's always been hard. There's been times in the past where I've chosen to not go to the hospital uh, whenever maybe I should have or, or my wife should have uh, just because we were worried about the money. But in this case, we just had to do it. We didn't know what to do. He's five months old, completely helpless. And this is kind of an extreme example of how you can be building for a positive change in your life for a long, long time, only to see the whole dynamic change in an instant and see all the work that you did just come crashing down in flames. And it's also about how albums have a tendency to follow you through some of the biggest events in your life. But before I expand on that, let's rewind a couple of years and talk about how we got here in the first place. When we last left off in this story, it was also during a Hope's Fall-themed episode, my wife and I had just gotten married, and we were starting our new journey together, our new life together. And if you haven't heard that episode yet, I highly recommend going back and giving it a listen. In that episode, I talked about how the album Magnetic North by Hope's Fall sort of stuck with me through those tough years leading up to our marriage, and how the lyrics perfectly called out my more immature mindset during those years but the thing that bummed me out was that that album was massively important to me and the band kind of just went away after that like and I still continued to listen to that record for a long time afterward but as I grew up and got a little bit more mature I kind of missed the band and how they were always able to capture my sense of wonder and sum up the way that I was feeling. Like maybe they weren't aware of it, but that's what that band did for me. There's like maybe three other bands that do that for me. Uh, one of them being Zayo, the other one being Hope's Fall, and the other one is Me Without You. But before I get too deep into this story, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Arbiter. A new Hope's Fall record was like the last thing I was expecting to get in 2018. Like, yeah, I knew about it. Like, I was a music podcaster. I knew Hope's Fall was back. I pre-ordered the album on pink vinyl. Uh, but I wasn't, like, actively paying much attention to it because if you couldn't tell by the start of this episode, I kind of had a lot going on that year. But music has this way of melding with our memories. And I probably sound like a broken record here, but, like, even though this album came out after the story that I'm about to tell, when I think back to that time period, these songs are constantly playing in my head when I'm thinking about it. And I kind of want to capture that as much as I can on this episode. But the way I feel about Arbiter as a record is it's kind of like an old friend shows back up in your life after more than a decade, but you still feel like you're picking that friendship up where you left off. And that's what Arbiter is to me. It's a perfect record. 
like I've had it long enough to, to finally call it that. The thing that I thought was really interesting about this album is that the lineup is almost classic Satellite Years. It's not exactly the same band, but it's a lot closer. And you've got two of my favorite guys in this band. You've got Jay Forrest on vocals, who's one of my favorite vocalists of all time. The way that he is able to transition from like angry, hardcore screams into just this like smooth, alternative rock, hard rock, clean singing. He is just a master at it. And anything that has Adam Morgan on drums is always a classic in my book. You can fight me on that. I think Adam Morgan's one of the best drummers ever. Not because he plays the most complicated stuff in the world, but he plays with such raw feeling that the drums actually play an emotional role in the music, which is something that I don't usually feel when I'm listening to records like this. And the first time I heard this record, I was thinking to myself, yes, this is the band that I fell in love with. Because the opening of Faint Object Camera is iconic, and it cut right to the heart of what I was feeling at that time. And that song sounds super, super sad. And like you start the record off feeling like a little bit bummed out because it's kind of like a, a bittersweet sort of melancholy song. But luckily, that song fades pretty fast because H.A. Wallace Space Academy is a breathtaking, upbeat, in-your-face, positive energy song. And, like, I don't typically listen to this kind of music for its quote-unquote positive energy, but this record is able to capture sadness and happiness and triumph, and I think that's why this record is such an interesting parallel to this time in my life. It's just bright, hopeful, it's textured, it's melodic, and there's a moment at the end of CS The Lucky One that is so spellbinding. Like, I told my wife while I was writing this script that this small chunk of audio totally captures my entire sense of wonder. Don't worry, I'll, I'll play it at some point during this episode. The anger is still there from the band's hardcore roots, but all of the sort of more hard rock or quote-unquote traditional songwriting that the band's employed on their last two records is in full effect here. And it still has that like atmospheric space rock backbone. And maybe at some point I'll sit down and do an actual like full-on album review where I only talk about this record because I know I didn't do it on my last podcast because whenever we did our Hopes Fall episode back then, the album hadn't come out yet. So maybe that's in the books for the future. Maybe we'll rediscover, rediscover, rediscover Arbiter by Hopes Fall. But the last thing I'm going to say about the record is the record is mature. The anger is still there, but there's real indignation on this record. It's mature anger, and it's mixed with moments of pure joy and triumph. And that's why I think that I'm probably going to listen to it until the day I die. Even if the record that they put out after this one is way better, I'm still going to always be throwing my hands up for Arbiter. So let's get back into the story. Two years into our marriage, I lost my big boy banking job, which I talked about in the Norma Jean Redeemer episode last season. And that kind of forced me to sit in my apartment for a long time, reevaluating what I wanted to do with my life. 
And I remember I played like a hundred hours of Borderlands on the Xbox 360 before it contracted the dreaded Red Ring of Death because, because of course it did. They they all did. It's not a matter of like if it's gonna happen. It's it's when. Uh, and so after that, I got the bright idea that I was gonna go back to college and I was gonna try to get a degree of some kind so that I could make myself more appealing to potential employers. And I ended up working two part-time jobs in the meantime to assist my wife, who had essentially been the breadwinner for a long time at that point. And I worked part-time at a bookstore in the mall in a calendar kiosk, like during the, during the holidays, it was, it was not a lot of fun. But I also worked part-time at a local video game store, which actually was unironically a lot of fun. But we lived in a very low income bracket for another couple of years while I was working those jobs and my wife was working full time until I finally landed a job as a cable installation technician, which I did that for another two years, which is detailed in an episode that hasn't come out yet. And during that time, we had our first child together and it was a big moment. I was getting like semi regular promotions at work. And my wife found herself eventually having to make the decision to stop working and stay home with our child because we made so little money that all the money that she did earn pretty much ended up going towards childcare. And during that time, we also had another child. And I ended up changing careers from being a cable technician to, and this is a huge jump, right? To satellite TV installation technician. So yeah, there actually is a defined period of my life that I describe as my satellite years. Bro, come on! And during this period, things seemed like they were slowly inching forward, but I got impatient. I, I wanted to make more money now. I wanted that change to come faster. A few months before I left the satellite job, a good friend of mine had just finished his degree in biomedical technology which at the time I had no idea like what that was. And he had started a job as a biomedical technician at a big healthcare company. And I remember him kind of describing the job to me and how much more interesting and sort of gratifying the work was. Cause at the end of the day, I really don't care whether or not your grandma has HBO, but like he was working on like medical equipment and it just seemed like the type of job that like, I don't know, you, you almost feel a little bit like a hero. Like, I feel like that's what hooked me was like, you're gonna make a difference in the world by helping save lives. But mostly I was just jealous of how much more money he was making than I was. And it made me wish that I had finished my technical degree all those years ago when I actually ended up dropping out of college. And I just felt like there was no way that somebody like me a band dude who had dropped out of college, like could ever get a job doing that kind of work and making that kind of money. Cause I had limited education and I had a limited skill set, And so I felt like I was trapped to always kind of be working as an independent contractor for anybody that would give me a chance. And I also had like this terrible problem with authority and struggled really hard to work in corporate environments. Cause the thing about a corporate environment is that there's people above you who demand your respect, but they never really take time out to try to earn it. And I always had a problem with that. Like I know it's the rat race and it's the way that it was, but like even now I still have a little bit of trouble with that. 
But my friend seemed to be under the impression that I could definitely do the job with my current skill set. And so he spent weeks and weeks kind of building me up and convincing me that I could do it. And so I finally caved and I applied for the job. And I remember doing the first job interview and it going really well. Uh, I tried my hardest to emphasize that like my skills with cable and satellite troubleshooting was valid. Because, yeah, we're dealing with medical devices, but they're still electronic devices. And so I told the interviewer that the troubleshooting method is the same no matter what you're working on. Uh, and this seemed to make them pretty happy. But because I didn't have a degree in the field, they had to send me through a whole bunch of tests. So I took a pretty intense series of technical aptitude tests. And some of them were like really high level math checks that I didn't really understand at the time. And I kind of just had to figure them out in real time. And you know, like the meme says, it was big brain time. And after what seemed like 10 different tests that I took over the course of the next few weeks, I finally got to the final boss or, you know, the final interview with the, with the, with the big boss of the department. And it was an intense interview. Like he started throwing out all of these crazy hypothetical situations and asking me what I would do in those situations. And I think he was just trying to get an idea of where my headspace was when it came to split second decision making. And I also think it was just because I didn't have a degree. He's going to put a lot more scrutiny on me than he would put on somebody that went through college. But after being put through all of those paces and all of the tests and all of the interviews, I guess they still liked me because they offered me the job. And I remember I called my wife and I told her, hey, I'm making this much. Everything's going to be okay. We made it. And man, did I learn so much over the course of the next few years. I learned how to troubleshoot devices down to the component level, how to disinfect complex water systems, how to maintain supplies and parts for a healthcare clinic. But most importantly, I learned how much I could take as far as adversity goes. Because despite being a good technician, I found that as my time with the company increased, so did the company's demands on my time. Being an on-call technician for a healthcare company was one of the worst experiences of my life. The concept of like a 24-hour to 30-hour shift was normal. Like spending entire days cleaning water systems and fixing a never-ending stream of broken machines had this effect of just ruining my personality just taking it away, like separating your soul from your body, like to the point where you can only perform basic motor functions and troubleshooting, a lot of troubleshooting. So every day I just went places, did what I had to do, and then it was off to the next place to do it all over again, rinse and repeat until I die. And I remember I took a break for a week whenever my third child was born, my first son. And as soon as I came back, it was 
literally another four months of constantly being on call. So like I have this new baby boy at home, but I never get to see him. I don't get to see my girls. I don't get to see my wife. It wasn't unusual for me to work an overnight shift, go home, lay down in bed for 10 minutes, and then another clinic calls telling me they needed something, something that they failed to tell me they needed yesterday or a week ago. And our team was really small, but there were so many times where I felt like it was only me. Like I was the only one that picked up the phone or maybe the other techs were like telling the clinics to only call me. And during this time, my old podcast discography discussion was also in full swing with weekly episodes. And you guys know how that was, you know, listening to a band's whole discography in a week and then talking about it, which doing that type of work and all the driving that I had to do actually made that a little bit convenient. But looking back on it, I really don't have any idea how I balanced all of that. And I remember one time when me and my co-host Jeff got invited to do this podcast called Drunken Lullabies at a local brewery. And it was at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. And in order for me to make this work, I had to go to work, do an 11-hour water system disinfection at a clinic that was like an hour away from my house. So I went in at like 9 p.m. on a Saturday night, and I came out at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. Got home at 9 a.m., slept for 90 minutes, woke up in time to go outside and get in Jeff's car because he was there to pick me up. And then we drove to the brewery so we could do the podcast, did the podcast, drank a whole bunch of beer because it was like a tasting, you know, a beer tasting sort of podcast. And then I went home, slept for a few hours, and then I was back at work by five o'clock that night. And I remember that was kind of the start of me not getting enough sleep and overworking to the point where when I did have time off, my wife felt like she couldn't take me anywhere because she was afraid that I was going to fall asleep, either fall asleep behind the wheel, fall asleep on the couch at a friend's house. So like in a best case scenario, she was embarrassed because I fell asleep in public. And in a worst case scenario, we all die in a car crash because I fell asleep at the wheel. I remember one time I took my kids to a birthday party and I ended up spending an hour on the phone with a clinic who needed me to stop what I was doing and come out immediately because they couldn't turn on their machines properly. You know, the machines that they turn on every single day, it's part of their job. So like there was zero work-life balance at this point. But I mean, I was making a lot of money with overtime hours and my family was being taken care of. But the problem is, is I never got to see said family or spend any time with said family. And like Han Solo said, what good is a reward if you're not around to use it? So now we're caught up to where we left off in the intro. After making the decision to take our five-month-old son to the ER, my wife went ahead and just took him by herself, and I stayed home with the girls. And we were shocked when they got there and said they couldn't find anything wrong other than the fact that he was, you know, struggling to breathe, which I personally think is important, but clearly they didn't. And they said that if it got worse to bring him back. So my wife brought him home and she was exhausted. She went to bed and I stayed up all night with him in the living room. 
watching him try to sleep while he's struggling to breathe. And I remember just like freaking out a bunch of times because like I was saying earlier, I would nod off in just a couple of, of seconds. And so then I would wake up in a panic because I was worried that I was going to like wake up and like he wouldn't be breathing or something and it'd be really bad. And I didn't know how long I was asleep and it was terrifying. And in the morning, my wife woke up and we felt like his breathing was worse than it was the night before. So we took him back to the ER where they basically were about to tell us the same thing as last night. Like, oh, keep an eye on him, see if anything's going to happen or whatever. And they were about to like discharge them but I guess the little guy like just couldn't take anymore and he just threw up all over the doctor's examination table so at that point they admitted him to the hospital because they were afraid that he was dehydrated even though my wife had been telling them that you know he hadn't been nursing for a long time but I still had these other two kids at home who needed you know an adult to be there with them so I called my boss to let him know that like hey man I'm not going to be able to come to work today and I'm not going to be able to be on call and I don't know how long the situation is going to take and I don't know how long I'm going to be off. And he was understanding, but he still asked me to like call him every day to give him an update so that they could quote unquote make a plan for the week, which is kind of messed up, but whatever. Since we didn't know how long he'd be in the hospital, me and my daughters packed a bag with spare clothes for my son and wife and we got some food and snacks together and we went up to the hospital to visit him and what followed was 11 days of uncertainty just full of small victories and a lot of worrying So it turns out that my son had RSV, and RSV is a pretty common respiratory virus. And in a lot of cases, it's not severe, but if you're a five-month-old baby, it's kind of severe. And it was severe enough for him to get, and it was severe enough for him to be in the PICU for 11 days, as they hooked him up to oxygen machines, and he needed, he basically needed breathing assistance most of that time. And at first, I had been dropping my girls off at their grandma's house while I went up to the hospital every day to visit them. But I still had to, like, call my boss every day to give him updates on what was going on. And during this time, he asked me, like, hey, can you drop your kids off somewhere and come up here and look at something for a second? Or can you work for a couple of hours today? Or can you do this sort of thing? Because we could really use the help, man. And I never gave in to that because... There wasn't any way I was going to be able to like go to work and actually function or actually work because I was just like a giant ball of stress and anxiety. And I had trouble regulating anxiety as it is, so this would have just been impossible. But with my profession being a biomedical technician, I did find myself getting a little upset at the hospital staff and the people that were taking care of my son. I was kind of rude to the staff and I'd make sarcastic comments to them like a lot and I feel the need to explain that like I was in a bit of a rage because of how stressed out I was and I know that the nurses and hospital staff were absolutely doing the best they could for my son but I just had a hard time seeing that at the time 
And my wife and I agreed that I should probably not spend too much time at the hospital. So one day I decided to take my younger daughter with me to the hospital to visit her little brother because I still went up to visit at least once a day. But this turned out to be a pretty big mistake because, well, then my younger daughter ended up contracting RSV also. But with her being three years old and having more developed and tough lungs, she was able to kind of handle it without us having to go to the hospital. But it also meant that I couldn't take my girls to grandma's house anymore. So for a period of about three days, me and my two daughters just stayed home while we got reports on how things were going via text message from my wife. And it seemed like every day they would reduce his oxygen level a little bit to see if he could breathe on his own stronger, but they would eventually end up just having to re-up his oxygen level. His progress was really slow moving. And my poor youngest daughter just sort of dealt with the sickness the only way she knew how, which involved her just laying there sleeping for like two days. And I remember one morning I woke up to find her sleeping on the floor at the base of my bed. And she must have woke up during the night and came looking for me and was probably too weak and tired to climb up on the bed. So she just curled up and went to sleep right there. And it absolutely broke my heart. I hated the whole situation and just how helpless it made me feel. And my poor wife hadn't been home since the day she went to the ER. Like she was supported by me and some family and friends bringing her food and changes of clothes. And her strength and resolve during that time really makes me feel so frail and lazy by comparison because I was a mess. So in the meantime, trapped in the house, I spent hours upon hours just entertaining the girls. We watched movies, ordered pizzas, and just played so many games of Candyland and Mario and read books. And when the weather wasn't too cold, I went outside and I was working on this swing set that I'd been working on for like three or four months because I had to work all the time and didn't really have time to work on the swing set. And uh, I also didn't like really know what I was doing half the time. But I remember I got the the small little trampoline. It's like this little like two foot by two foot trampoline, like tiny trampoline for kids. I got that part finished and my oldest daughter was overjoyed. I remember we were outside for like five or six hours one day because it wasn't too, too cold outside. And she just jumped on that thing and knocked out sick jump after sick jump. And I kind of just sat there and tried not to worry. But I'm not super great at hiding my emotions. My worry face gives me away every time. And after knocking out some really sick jumps on the trampoline, she walks over to me and gives me this huge hug and says, I love you so much, Daddy. I'm so happy that you're home with us all the time. I get to see you all the time now. And, you know, after I was done bawling my eyes out, uh, we went in and had dinner. And I told her the next day, look, we're going to go somewhere and we're going to play and we're going to have fun because her sister was finally feeling better. So the next day I took the girls to McDonald's and I let them play to their heart's content in the play place. And while I was there, I got a call from my boss wanting another progress report. And he emphasized that if I took any more time off that I'd have to come in and fill out FMLA paperwork. It was like literally the last thing on my mind, dude. And eventually after like 10 days, my son did start to be able to breathe on his own without assistance. And we finally got him back home almost a full two weeks after the whole ordeal had started. 
And it was so relieving. And it was one of the times in my life that I felt the most blessed. I went back to work shortly after, and it was straight back to the grind. Constant on-call shifts, having to stop mid-job and go do something that was more pressing. More 30-hour shifts, more constantly getting called at 5 a.m., trying to find time to listen to a whole band's discography each week in order to be ready for the podcast. Except when I returned, I was greeted by the reality that my work hadn't really been getting done by other people when I was gone. Like, not only that, but the few times another biomed did come to one of my clinics to fix something, the clinic managers would send emails to my boss telling them how much of a better job the other biomed did and how he was much more timely and organized than I ever was. They were literally kicking me while I was down. And the managers who sent the emails failed to mention that I was spread super thin and at one point was responsible for up to five clinics at once. And I only had so much time in one day to attend to everybody. And my boss and coworkers would joke with me when I got back and ask me how I enjoyed my two-week vacation and that somebody had seen me out playing with my kids at McDonald's while I was supposedly having a family emergency. And it infuriated me, but I didn't have time to worry about it because there was so much work that I had to do. And then the hospital bill came in. Cue the to the hellfire button. And I almost completely lost my mind. Like, due to some kind of mix-up with his birth certificate and my HR department, they never ended up putting him on my insurance. Which meant that I received a hospital bill in the mail for almost $20,000. And I totally freaked out. called the HR department in a rage. With as much as I worked and with as much blood, sweat, and tears as I had put into that place, I couldn't believe that they were going to let me foot that bill. And HR actively fought me and told me that their mistakes were my mistakes and that there was nothing that they could do. So I was just like stuck with this like half a student loan size debt. So in an act of defiance, I just refused to do any more work until the situation was sorted out. After all I had to pay for health insurance out of every paycheck, I didn't feel like I was really working for anything anyway. So I ended up running my complaints up the chain of command all the way to the executives of the company until they finally caved and applied my son to the insurance. Just another crisis averted. But I can tell you from that moment on, it was never the same at work again. It seemed like they piled more and more work on me, which led to more complaints from clinic managers because, I mean, I'm only one dude and I can only do so much. And one particular night, I remember another biomed called me and told me I needed to drop what I was doing. This is at 11.30 p.m. on a weeknight and drive an hour to another clinic that he was closer to than me and go take care of some machines that needed fixing. 
And I told him that I was in the middle of a project over an hour away. And even if I stopped what I was doing right then, it would still take me a minimum of three hours to get there because I was surrounded by disassembled machines. And so I'd have to put them all back together, put everything away, you know, get everything going and then drive an additional hour. So I was like, no, dude, I'm not going to stop what I'm working on. You need to just figure it out. Well, typically, as my luck goes, two weeks later, that coworker was promoted to my direct supervisor. And then I guess you could probably guess what happened next. One week later, I was called into an office with him and the big boss that I originally interviewed with before and was told that I had falsified a work order that I performed and that they were going to have to launch an investigation. Now, this was absolutely a lie. I'm a human being, so I'm not above making a mistake sometimes, but... What they were accusing me of was saying I had done a task that I didn't really do. And they had zero proof of this. Dude just straight up closed his eyes, picked one of my work orders, and was like, he lied about doing this one. But there's a zero tolerance policy in the healthcare industry for record falsification, as there should be. So there's no chance to really defend yourself. You're just, you're just guilty because they say that you're guilty. So I got fired from that job. Even though I had a clean record, no disciplinary actions or misconduct against me. No write-ups, nothing like that. And it's funny as I'm writing this script how I really should have seen it coming. I mean, it makes sense. Like, I was becoming a problem. I refused to work until they figured out an HR thing. In their eyes, I was just out playing with my kids during a family emergency. And, um, you know, that guy calling me and asking me to stop everything and do something for him. He knew he was getting promoted. It was a power move. It was a test to see if I would comply with what he said, and I didn't, so I had to go. But unlike a lot of firings in the past, this one hit different. All I could think about while it was happening was how I wasn't going to have to work 30-hour shifts anymore. I was actually happy that I was being fired. They chewed me up and spit me out, and I was finally done with it. I'd survived. I'd come out the other side of it. Now, nobody could call me while I was with my family and pull me away. And at this point in my life, I was sick of other people dictating what I could or couldn't do, where I could go, what I could say, how I could act. I was just done, man. I was going to be the arbiter of my own life from there on out, and I was going to be the ultimate authority and decision maker on what happened with me and my family. I came home that day, took off my company jacket, went in the backyard, started working on that swing set, and my daughter pulled off some sick jumps reaching towards the sky on her trampoline. And then I got a notification that my package had arrived. And I went downstairs, opened up the package to open up my brand new copy of Hope's Falls Arbiter. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. Like I said in the intro, my name is Daniel Terry. Guys, if you like this podcast and this is your first episode, go back and listen to the 22 episodes I posted on Season 1. 
there's some really cool content in there and it gives a little bit of context for some of the origins of some of the things that happened in this particular story. If you guys like the podcast, make sure you're subscribed to it on your favorite podcasting app. And if you guys have any questions for me or just want to talk and hang out, I do have a Discord server that you can go to. There will be a link in the show notes that will invite you to the Discord server. If you're into that sort of thing or if you just want to ask me a question, you can send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And if you guys want to hear your episodes early throughout the season, I do have a Patreon. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Patreon's a lot of fun. We have a monthly Patreon hangout where I sit down and talk with you guys and we share stories and answer questions and just have a good time and, and chill out. And those are a lot of fun. So uh, I will have a live stream coming up pretty shortly after releasing this episode. So make sure to look out for that. You can check my socials and all of that for an announcement of, of the time and all of that. So with all of that said, I am so happy to be back and I cannot wait to spend this upcoming season with you guys. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week.